few weeks ago, I was able to sit at a roundtable discussion with one of the key Christian thinkers of our day, uh, Andy Crouch. He's written books uh, like Culture Making and also has a new, a new book coming out, um, Playing God. And, and he said something that, that surprised me. He said, one of the biggest issues for the church today, it's not dealing with money. It isn't even surrounding the issue of sexuality. But rather, the biggest issue where the church is most lost is around the issue of power. And I think he's right. We look in every aspect of our lives and we see struggles for power in every relationship. You can look in your home, you can look at school, you could look at your work. I mean, obviously in the global scale, nations versus nations, power struggle. But even, I would say, even the animal kingdom isn't. Uh, void of this issue. Now, for example, when I take my dog Lola for a walk on the sidewalks here downtown, on a regular basis, we run into this ferocious little tiny dog called Flora. She's a little spunky Pomeranian. And every time Lola, she's, uh, uh, she's half lab and half Weimaraner, um, so she's a lot bigger than Flora. But every time we get around Flora, Flora puts out these raging barks and these little pathetic, you know, snarls. She's trying to dominate Lola by, with, with all this frontage of, of anger. And Lola just kind of gives me the doggy head tilt, like, what is going on? What is, who does Flora think she is? And tries not to swallow her with one gulp. Um, but what we do is we, we see these struggles for power in all aspects of our lives, especially in the animal kingdom, and in those everyday struggles for power, we get glimpses of the dark side of power. We've seen it, whether it's in the sneaky politician, or whether it's in the greedy executive or abusive parents. And whenever we see power abused in this fashion, we many times sum up our whole perspective on power with one axiom. It's pretty familiar. Power corrupts. But absolute power, what? Corrupts absolutely. But what if, what if power wasn't essentially evil? What if power wasn't a toxin that destroyed its possessor, but was a tool capable of good in the right hands? What if we were actually designed to have power as a gift? Yes, it is dangerous. The best things in life are actually dangerous, right? Some of them. But it doesn't have to be disastrous. I mean, think about it. If, isn't, isn't God absolutely all-powerful, but still simultaneously absolutely all-good? If we think back to when we were created at the dawn of time, in the garden, we were given dominion. We were given power over the rest of creation before the world fell into sin. And if we were designed, actually, to have power... The better question isn't whether power is good or evil. It is how do we steward, how do we use the power that we've been given in our homes, in our schools, in our communities, with the causes that you support, with your schedules, with the goals you set in your life. How do we navigate all of this power in such a way that we ensure ourselves not to go to the dark side of power? Well, Nehemiah, he had quite a bit of power. And quite a bit of influence um, in his, his locale. And he was really gifted in this area. 
And as people who have been restored in Jesus Christ, if you have submitted your life to his lordship, we'll see an answer that for us and how we deal with power, we see that restored people use their power to restore others. If you want to put it more simply, restored people restore people. Restored people restore people. And when we come to Nehemiah 5, we're going to see three critical steps on how someone who's following Jesus seeks to restore others out of the restoration of their own hearts. First, we're going to see that restored people listen to their cries. Restored people listen to their cries. Secondly, restored people fear God above all else. And then thirdly, restored people pour out. They overflow above everyone else. So if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extra copies on the back table there. Uh, Here at Christ Community, we value God's Word, Scripture, as a key element in navigating us as a community of faith in all aspects of life and worship and work. And uh, you can take one of those Bibles uh, for yourselves as a gift from us if you do not have one. Well, just earlier in the story, or story just before Nehemiah 5, we saw that the people of God were hard at work as a team on the wall. And the text said they had a mind to work. Their hearts were dedicated to the task that had been given to them, right? And despite the outside oppression of folks like Sanballat, Tobiah, and these other power-hungry provinces around, we see the people of God are leaning into their work as they're leaning into their faith that God will protect them at the wall. Yeah, they were now carrying weapons in one hand and a rock in the other, and they're, they're praying out prayers with their mouths, but there seems to be nothing that can stop their work at the wall. Then we get to chapter 5, as Josh so eloquently read, eloquently read for us. It's, it's always funny when you start talking about eloquence and you can't say the word eloquence. There's a bit of irony there in that statement. But um, when we get to chapter 5, we see that the oppression isn't just outside the four walls, is it? It's not just Sanballat. It's not just Tobiah and these other power-hungry provinces. But it's actual brothers and sisters oppressing one another. The work, it comes to a screaming halt at chapter 5, verse 1. And let's look at that together once again. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now, this word outcry, this, this isn't describing a whimper. This isn't a whimper. This isn't a quiet, subtle tear rolling down the cheek. Rather, what we see here is, is the yelling of a mother holding her child with a swollen stomach from its starvation, or the screams of an ashamed father because he had to give away his daughter, sell her into slavery to feed the rest of the family. Imagine the screams that accompany injustice. That's what this word outcry, it's blood curdling. I mean, it's just intense. And then when you, when you come to this language of the wives, why are they set apart from the people? It just seems like weird language there, doesn't it? Why don't you just say the people? Why do we also have the wives? It's because the wives were not normally the ones who came and made the case of injustice before the leaders of the people. It was usually the husbands or the fathers that would come and plead the case. But the situation is so destructive, so chaotic, that the reader or the writer here, Nehemiah, is reminding us that this is so broken down that even the wives are crying out about this. So why is this happening? If you look in verses 2 through 5, it presents us with this perfect storm 
of oppression. First, everyone is cutting their time short in their fields to be working at the wall. So they're putting in some extra elbow grease to really navigate um, and, and help build up this wall for the community. But on top of that, there's a famine in the land. So everybody's running short on food because of the natural conditions of the environment. So this caused landowners to mortgage their fields so that they could gain money to buy food. This also, uh, uh, for the poor without land, they would have to sell, as we read here, their children into slavery in order to get money for the rest of the family so that they can eat. And on top of both of these situations, we have this heavy tax from King Artaxerxes, this Persian tax that would have been difficult to pay even in the most generous of times, but now, when everyone's struggling, it's become an overbearing burden. So one thing on top of another is slowly crushing the people. We see the perfect storm of oppression. And this hit most of the community really hard, excluding the richest of the rich. I mean, the rich were normally able, unlike the rest of society, to store away grain when, when a time of famine came. The rest of society was many, many times going hand to mouth. I mean, day by day, this is where the Lord's Prayer really brings a lot of breath and fresh air. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. This is a common experience by people in the ancient Near East and even up into the first century. But the rich were able to store away... So in times of famine, they might have a surplus and have security. And here, the richest of the rich are actually profiting off the misfortune of the poor by selling part of their surplus at exorbitant prices, requiring interest, and so on. And if you didn't have money to pay, you either borrowed money to buy food with a high interest rate, as we said, or you give what you did own as a pledge, as collateral, as a promise that you will pay it back. So you mortgage your fields, or you give them your son or your daughter. And, and this is what we see culminating in verse 5 with this powerless cry of the people saying, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So do you get the picture here. The rich are getting richer, the poor are becoming more and more poor, and what's so detestable about this situation is that it's happening inside the four walls. This isn't Sanballat, this isn't Tobiah, this isn't the power-hungry provinces, this is brother to brother, cousin to cousin, all within the fold of God's people. I recently read an article um, in Forbes how a free country eventually becomes a very oppressive country. And they use Germany as an example after the First World War. You see, after World War I, everything was in shambles in Germany. Um, you saw that they were left in extreme poverty with huge war debt to surrounding countries with no way out to pay. And they were publicly and globally humiliated and financially just bankrupt. And the whole world looked on with this righteous sense of punishment for what Germany had been doing in World War I, and they simultaneously ignored the cries of the Germans. It was this perfect storm that led to the rise of one who would hear their cries, Adolf Hitler. And he would form, therefore, the Nazi party who took their broken cries and organized them into angry shouts of war. The beginning of global oppression began again out of oppression. 
And it didn't end without first Germans oppressing other Germans as well. It became a really oppression-begatting oppression and so on. You see, in this article, the writer, he makes a brilliant observation about the human condition. He says, In hard times, many people are often willing to go along with and support terrible things that would be unthinkable in good times. And what we find here in this new rehabilitated city of Jerusalem, we find anything but easy and good times. You see, what makes it even more haunting is that not everything happening here in Nehemiah is illegal, per se. Um, yeah, I mean, we could look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19, where it says you, you shouldn't uh, give a loan to a fellow Jew and then charge interest on top of that. Um, and then we could look in other passages in the book of Leviticus and also see similar laws. But taking a pledge or taking collateral on a loan like a person's property or their child, was actually culturally accepted and widely practiced. Um, it's here we see what we all know too well. We, we, we know this truth to be, very, to, be, to be a reality in our lives. What is legally permissible and culturally acceptable isn't necessarily morally right. Okay, let me repeat that. What's legal, legally permissible and culturally acceptable isn't always morally right. And we as people, we find loopholes, right, in the system to so easily expand our power reaches and to build our own prestige. Some of the greatest injustices in our community have been and still are legal. I mean, you look at the history of Kansas City and the real estate wars. You could look at many of the deeds um, in our suburbs and even still in our city, and you would find racial covenants to which you could not sell your property to anyone who was non-white. And therefore, you have created these pockets of poverty and a greater divide in the racial history that still creates our truce line in our city today. Another aspect is payday loans. They still take advantage of the poor with these, these enslaving interest rates. And abortion still tramples on the rights of the most vulnerable that have no voice in our world. You see, in verse 6, Nehemiah the work stops because his ears are burning from the cries of oppression. So we ask, how, how do restored people restore others? The first step is that restored people must listen to their cries. Restored people must listen to their cries. I mean, there's a reason the poor and oppressed are many times called in our world the voiceless. The voiceless. This is a term that's thrown around frequently. And that's because there is so much noise in our world, so many voices, that we tend to listen to the voices that benefit us, that can expand our power, that can build our prestige, that can grow our wealth. But the voices that challenge us many times, the voices that cause us to be uncomfortable, the voices that call us out of our comfort into service or to generosity, we many times want to shut those voices down. Our hearts are so bent that it's hard to see the straight and narrow path. So I ask you this morning, are you listening to the cries that are around you? And the best place to start for us, and the best place to start for you yourself, is in your own home, your own environment. Where are you abusing power? Hearing has a presupposition of proximity, you know? 
You can't hear unless you're close. You can't hear unless you have some avenue at which it is coming to you that, that you're around. And power dominance, it seduces us all in several, several different ways. Um, but it's always the most elusive. That's the reason why Andy Crouch said it's one of the biggest issues we have, is power. Because we can see when we're, or at least our bank accounts are growing to exorbitant amounts and people are dying of starvation around us. Or in issues of sexuality, that's very blatant. But power, it's deep. It's under the current. Tim Keller calls it a deep idol that manifests itself in many different avenues for control and ownership and prestige. So, where are you taking advantage of others? Is it at home by the demands you put on your spouse, on your children, or your siblings, or even your parents? Is it at work or is it at school? Are you listening to your community leaders who are pointing out the elderly that are being abandoned, the disabled, the single parents, the abused children, the chronically ill, or even new immigrants who are crying out? But even here, you know, we start at home, but we can't stop at home, can we? Our city's too interconnected with all these highways, and our world is too interconnected with internet pathways to just look inside of our homes. One of Christ Community's five values is the city. And we believe that we were designed to give ourselves away for our neighborhood, our city, and our world. And so we ask ourselves, are we listening to the cries of oppression and injustice in our neighborhoods, in our city, and in our world? Did you know that the KC most schools are still unaccredited? Some of you know this all too well. Imagine how this still affects racial equality and poverty for generations. It's not just how it affects it today, but how then it affects it for generations and how it forms families when education is broken. Do we hear their cries? Or did you know the average interest rate for a payday loan is 400%? I mean, do you wonder why these businesses are on every corner in low-income communities? And when we go to a wealthier community, you find more bank establishments. But if you go in a low-income community, banks are nowhere to be found. Many times, it's just the payday loan systems with these exorbitant interest rates. What choices are available? Do we hear their cries? Did you know... I just heard this recently, that 70% of the world's chocolate comes from companies that use child slave labor. More than 1.8 million children work in this industry at great risk so we can enjoy M&Ms. I still remember sitting in an international business course in college and wrestling with one of my professors on how we tackle with child labor laws in different countries. What's acceptable? What's not? It's very legal in other countries, but is it morally right? And wrestling through the complexities of that, what does that look like? Do we hear their cries? Now, trust me on this. I know the answers to these, these questions. They're, they're very complex. They're not easy. But if we just clog our ears and no one hears their cries, there will be no answers whatsoever. The good news of the gospel is that the voiceless are heard. The lost are not forgotten, and the broken are not left in ruin. I mean, the good news of what God has done in Christ for us, it calls us to hear the cries of injustice. So I ask you again this morning, are you listening? Are you listening? But we can't just listen, can we? I mean, if our hearts are restored, then we, we can't sit still 
at least not comfortably. We have to wrestle within ourselves on what we can and can't do. We must use our power to actually confront injustice. So we ask the question, how do we go from just mere perception to now prevention? Um, And Nehemiah, he helps guide us here in verse 6, where he listens and responds. Look with me at verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and their words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? One of the main reasons injustice happens, folks, is because people no longer fear God as all-powerful. Rather, it becomes all about, for example, for power abusers, it's, it's using their influence, whether that's financial power or social power, to then widen their scope of horizons. No matter who they have to step on to get there, it's all about their gain. Now, the, perfect, the perspective that's still prevalent in our universities, um, and that's pretty prevalent throughout our nation, is this, this worldview of nihilism or nihilism. And Frederick Nietzsche... <laughs> Whoops-a-daisy. He's got this phenomenal mustache, for one. Um, I mean, he's got very powerful mustache follicles. Um, but he's a philosopher and an atheist from the 19th century, and he says, The world itself is the will to power and nothing else. And you yourself are the will to power and nothing else. He's also the same guy who said, Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We use that phrase quite often, don't we? It's all about power. If it, when, we, when we experience pressure and pushback, it's about building us to be more powerful. We don't even realize where some of these phrases are coming from and the worldview that captures them. There's no God above in this viewpoint. But you are your ultimate being, willing yourself to greater power and greater strength. All of life is directing your energy and your capacity towards making yourself greater which makes your ethics subject to whatever you want to do in order to get more powerful. So lie, cheat, murder, twist the rules. It's what you need to do to get ahead, to gain more power, more influence. Whatever you need to do, do it. And the irony of our story is that the prophets confronted the people of Jerusalem before they even returned. I mean, this was when the nation was thriving, but they were abusing the people within their four walls. And, and, and the prophets came to Israel and, and Judah. And for example, in Amos chapter 5, verse 11, and he says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. The whole reason they're even in this situation where they have to rebuild Jerusalem is because they wouldn't listen to the prophets way back then. And now they're back to square one, doing the exact same things that got them kicked out of the land. And Nehemiah is saying, yeah, God's on your side right now. This is the reason the opposition outside of the walls hasn't been able to stop us. But if you keep going the way you're going, God's going to kick you out of this city. You will not live in the same walls that you've just built. Now, I know culturally, 
We don't really like talking about the fear of God. Maybe we at Christ Community talk about it more than others, but <laughs> uh, we, we don't normally like to talk about it. It's not comfy. But restored people, they fear God above all else. Now, we would probably think we prefer a God who's kind of grandpa-like. He's got this big white beard. He's really fuzzy. He's really warm. He's always ready to give you a hug. It's like, oh, it's time for God time. Give me a hug. Um, but, but, but imagine... Imagine the mother who's seeing her child starving to death because of oppression. Or the father who's forced to sell his own daughter into slavery so that your family can eat another day. Are you sure you don't want a God who actually fights against the wicked and stands up for justice? Put yourself in their shoes. And and I'm not saying God's some cosmic cop that's coming in ready to give you a ticket or bonk you up on the side of the head. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about because God is loving, He's gracious. But it's because he loves so deeply. It's because he's so passionate for your good that he gets angry at sin and destruction and oppression because we're destroying his good world. Imagine your child abducted. Imagine your home confiscated or your stomach empty for the 50th day in a row. I don't want a God who's okay with that. And thankfully, our scripture shows a God who's not okay with that. This is the God we worship, the God who gets angry at brokenness and sin, a God who will do something about it. So fearing him is just a smart idea. Now, not only does a proper fear of God help keep us from going to the dark side of power personally, it helps empower us to confront power abusers around us. Um, For example, in justice, it angers Nehemiah here. He doesn't say... Well, we all have our issues, don't we? So, you know what? I I don't have the right to confront this guy. We've all all got our issues. No, and nor nor does he say on the other end, this just isn't right. This, this, This intuitive feeling with no sort of foundation whatsoever. Why does Nehemiah get angry? He responds because it makes God angry. It makes God angry. It's, his, it's, it's God's hatred of injustice that drives Nehemiah's hatred for injustice. He understands how God works in his world. And so we ask ourselves, do we get angry at injustice? Do we love the things that God loves so much that we get angry when brokenness and injustice bleed into our world? Do you fear God? In our story, uh, Nehemiah, he confronts some of the most powerful people. Jerusalem. They've got a lot of financial power and capital. They're in the place they are for various reasons, but he doesn't fear them. He fears God above all else. He's not worried about his approval ratings. God's opinion is the only one that really matters. I remember talking with a seminary buddy of mine, and uh, his dad wasn't a believer, um, but his dad was a circuit judge, Um, not a circus judge. (laughs) But a circuit judge, and, uh, you know, there was the the question, okay, well, what's your foundation for justice, as he's having this conversation with his dad? How do you find what is good and what is evil if you're an atheist? And he called himself kind of an ethics fashionista. Um, Whatever was in fashion at the time, whatever is widely accepted by the people, guides his decisions as a judge, which becomes very scary if the whole community is for injustice. If it's just people's opinion at the time, people's opinion can sway like that. It's the movement 
of groupthink, right? Where people are so impassioned and so enraged by an intuitive feeling without any foundation, which can destroy people and oppress whole communities of people. Don't be a justice fashionista, you know. If you get anything out of this, don't be a justice fashionista. Let God dictate what is just. And if God dictates what is just, you have to ask yourself, are you willing to confront injustice with him? Whether it be at work, whether it's the bully at school, or whether it's a global issue that seems insurmountable. If not, we have to ask the question, what do you really fear most? Do you fear losing public opinion? Do you fear becoming powerless as you use your power for the powerless? When Nehemiah's fear of God not only gives him boundaries for his own power and calls him to confront others who are abusing their power, it also calls him to repentance and restitution. Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Now, I wrestled with this passage. Um, Dan Spino knows well. We were in the teaching team meeting on Monday, and I was wrestling through, what is going on here with Nehemiah? Is he saying he was doing this too? And what Nehemiah actually says here is that he is sharing their culpability. He knows as a member of the community, as someone on the payroll of King Artaxerxes, who's expending this great tax, that he's a part of the problem. He shares in their guilt. And so what are the people to do? Well, Nehemiah demands that they return everything they've exacted to the people. He, 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 he in many ways, enacts this emergency year of jubilee. Which is strange, because throughout Scripture, we never find the year of Jubilee actually practiced. But it's, it is commanded by God. Every 49 years, the people of Israel were, by Old Testament law, to cancel all debts. They were to free all slaves and return all property. Nowhere in Scripture does it actually happen. But Nehemiah here, as God's agent of restoration, he kind of has this stump speech where no wall builder is left behind. You know, desperate times call for desperate measures. We need a year of Jubilee if it's just for a day, and we need it now. Well, the people, they, you know, it's kind of awkward when you bring a whole crowd around you and you say, hey, you guys got to stop this. What are they going to say? No, we're fine. No, but they do say, they, they quickly agree with Nehemiah's assessment, and Nehemiah being rightly skeptical, he calls the priests together and makes them make this oath in front of the whole community. And in verse 13, what does it say? And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. You know, this is like every preacher's dream. You, know? you, come, you confront in issues of sin, and people are like, You're right! It's time to change! 180! Here we go. Not 180. Yeah, 180. There we go. 360 would be terrible. Um, all this happens because restored people, they fear God above all else. It gives them guts when they feel like they got nothing. And when the people fear God, restore people, restore others. But the gospel, it doesn't even let us stop here. It's kind of tiring. <laughs> you go from perception to prevention. And one of Google's 10 values, you know, Google's this monstrous company in our world. We're getting Google Fiber, which I'm really thankful for. But one of its main values is that you can make money without doing evil. But the gospel calls us to go further than Google, you know? The gospel says how you make money should be contributing to the common good. It's not just about not doing evil. 
It's seeing how it's contributing, how it's actually good for society, what you've been called to do. Not only does Christ call us as restored people to listen to the cries of the voiceless, and then therefore to, to take the next step to be a voice for the voiceless, but the gospel calls us to empower and train the voices of the voiceless to be able to sing the songs of freedom themselves. We have to keep going. So, okay, the gospel is better than Google. Okay, that's a good checkpoint for us. But how do we, how do we go from prevention to proactive intervention? Right? How do we keep taking these next steps? And when we look further in chapter 5, we see that Nehemiah isn't just on the picket line confronting injustice, but he's also in the donation line, giving his time, his talent, and his treasure to empower lives of justice. Look at verse 15. Nehemiah, he's reminiscing over his years of service after the fact and says, The former governors, so before him, who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. This keeps trickling up here, doesn't it? He breaks the cycle of oppression from the governors before him and he puts the needs of the weak first. But he doesn't just resign, he doesn't just resign his rightful payment. He was also generous with his resources. I mean, he throws these big meals for people. And at one point, it even says he has 150 Jewish persons with him. But many times at these meals, what you'd find customary is you'd have both the rich and the poor. And these weren't just peanut butter and jelly picnics. This is like fogo to chow style meals, as Josh read off the list of the different animals that they've got going on there. There's a lot of meat. Sorry, that's... There's a lot of meat going on there. There's a lot of different food and, and, and luxury. But why does he do this? Because, because Nehemiah saw himself as a servant to Yahweh before anything else. And he seeks to use his financial and his social power to fulfill his responsibilities as a faithful steward. His responsibilities become, come before his rights. He had a right to call for payment. He had a right, every right in the world, to get the money that he was deserved. But he chose to resign that right and rather take up the responsibility as a steward for the people, seeking the needs of the weak before his own. And this, is kind of, this gives us the understanding for this final prayer here in verse 5. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for my people. He sees it through the lens of his servanthood to Yahweh. Not just, it doesn't just stop at the governor. He <laughs> He knows the buck doesn't eventually stop with him, but someone is reigning over him. He fears, he fears him greatly. When everyone else wants to take advantage of the voiceless, God's people are called to be entrepreneurs with generosity. Don't just stick to the same ways. Use your creative energy to figure out how to be generous to those who are weak and broken around you. You see, restored people, they overflow like no one else. They overflow like no one else. And sometimes this looks like relief meals, like it does for Nehemiah. There are times for that. And sometimes it looks like intentional community development, giving people jobs at the wall. I mean, you've got various aspects of compassion and generosity flowing here. So what pours out of you? Is it demands or donation? Is it, is it, is it domination or compassion? Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, 
he reminds us of the critical nature of our role in this process and, and in fighting injustice where he says, there's an inequitable distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world. Truth. And if God is sovereign, he's placed us in certain areas. Therefore, if you have been assigned the goods of this world by God and you don't share them with others, it isn't just stinginess, it's injustice. So what pours out of you? What pours out of you? I mean, Nehemiah, he couldn't have done this if God wasn't moving in his heart. We saw this at the very beginning. His heart is broken, and he says, God laid this on my heart to be a man of restoration, to go to the walls of Jerusalem and to build up this community. This is something God had laid on his heart. And you, we have to understand that the hard work of restoration is always preceded by the heart work of God's salvation and grace. It has to be. Our hands will get exhausted if our hearts aren't pumping grace and compassion. And some of you this morning, you're dry inside. You feel exhausted. You don't feel like you have anything extra to give. You, you just want to try not to lose it again with your spouse this week. You, you're tired of putting on this facade when you really hate your job. You're tired of plastering on a smile when the anxiety of your bills are just weighing you down. So we practically ask, how do you have a genuine generosity when life happens? How is genuine generosity even possible? And we can never be genuinely generous if we haven't first embraced the fact that we are both the oppressor and the oppressed. If we don't see ourselves as the guilty power abuser and also the needy abused. If we don't see ourselves as the offender of God as well as the one who cries out for rescue. And when we see ourselves in that position, we no longer can look down our noses at the poor because we see in their pain our own condition. We can no longer look at the oppressor with hatred because we see how their oppression is destroying even them. And we remind, we're reminded of our own brokenness. Yes, we hate oppression, but not the oppressor. And it's here that Jesus meets us. He's inviting us to a new emergency jubilee, right? How many of you remember when Jesus, he takes the words of Isaiah 61, and he said, these are the words of my mission. It's in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 19. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And a little later in the passage, he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. He's reaching down in our sin-sick poverty, and he's making us rich with mercy. Because he's restored us, then we can restore others. Because he's heard us, we can actually hear others. Because he has confronted sin and oppression, we can confront injustice. Because he has given all for us in his death on the cross, we can finally give with an overflow of generosity driven by gratitude, not by guilt. 
because we're freely loved and freely accepted because of what somebody else has done. So we don't expect to meet a standard. This is what God does with his power. This is how he uses his strength, his resources. What will you do with what God has given you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. We pray for the voiceless in our community. May we give, may you give us ears to hear their cries in our neighborhood. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the powerless in our community. May you strengthen us to confront injustice in our city. Give us this day our daily bread that we might give to others. We pray for the vulnerable in our community. May you energize our hearts toward genuine generosity in our world. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray for our partners in the gospel who are emotionally tired, financially fragile, and spiritually dry. May we be thoughtful in caring for them and serving alongside of them in the midst of our outreach together. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. May you, Lord, guide and empower us as we remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. Amen.